The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Terry Beasley has seen his fair share of flower emergencies at Olshik Nursery. When the unforeseen happens and blooms are needed in a hurry, Terry and the team jump into action. The next time you see multiple blooms of color from an event within 100 miles of Savannah, Georgia, you know Terry was probably involved. The Olshik name has been associated with growing plants in Savannah since 1882. How does a nursery survive and thrive for 140 years, becoming the oldest nursery in the southeastern United States? Terry tells the story. It's a story of keeping the faith and tenacity through numerous world events and natural disasters. He talks about the skills and techniques resulting in very special, beautiful plants. This is episode 43 of Flower Emergency with Terry Beasley. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Terry, what's a flower emergency? You know, we laugh about that over the years. Our business has been focused on the resort areas for the longest time. Some of these emergencies started with, we have an early spring tournament, and it's like the entire tournament is all dependent on geraniums being in full bloom, or they're going to call the tournament back for a couple of weeks. Our backs are against the wall with weather. We really have to push these plants to be ready for early March. That's one of the flower emergencies I can think of is just hitting the spot perfectly for big PGA type events and tennis events and things of that nature. These are all real draws for our area with tourists coming to town, filling up the hotels, and it kind of takes off like wildfire around here. Early spring and people are out and about and filling up these great vacation spots. There is one other thing that comes to mind that I think is just hard to believe that this happened. We have a large company, very professional organization. Somebody kind of mixed up some chemicals, got their round up confused with their fungicide. So they went to this high-end property and sprayed out what they thought was all fungicide. Well, that was a hard lesson learned. You've got to label your containers. Didn't take but 12 hours later for them to realize something was up. Within 24 hours, we took an entire load. And this was a large property. It wasn't just one gate. They went around and fungicide with Roundup every flower bed. It was about $15,000 worth of product. That was a hard hit. Oh, no. That was a real flower emergency. Yeah. There's always something, and I used to have salespeople that maybe have just joined us and still cutting their teeth, and they just couldn't believe the amount of phone calls we would get for somebody, as they would put it, there's another party Saturday night, and this person needs 500 plants, and of course, they've got to be in full color. That happens all the time with us, and we try to pride ourselves on having color 365 days a year for such events that might come up. I think that's really been a calling card of ours for years that we've been able to build the business on. It's instant color. It is very instant color. and almost takes us back 
to some of the product lines that we did years ago. It's almost floral type colors, but we're using as opposed to florist chrysanthemums and florist azaleas and things of that nature, which would have been typically used in indoor applications. But now they're for outdoor because we're working with annuals of all type, front of gates, but things that can take cold weather outside during the season. So you're the guys that bring all the color to those big TV events? We've been diversified, and that's been part of our portfolio, if you will, for a number of years and really has springboarded our company name to get out. Kind of a way of branding before you really heard the term. I guess that was part of it. When you'd see trucks rolling over to Hilton Head in some of these various areas, they would recognize those red geraniums. I would remember people coming back in Savannah saying, it's over at this golf tournament. That had to be your red geraniums out front. And I'll tell you what, a beam with pride thinking back to that. It was great. I bet. You would see a, a magazine where they're showing a, a golfer teeing off and you'd see your backdrop of those red geraniums or you would see it on television and it was just really quite a gas. Yeah. How do you plan for those emergencies or even just getting a crop ready on time? Boy, there's a lot to that. That can be very challenging. And today it's even more so because we're kind of stepping that up a bit. That's because you do so much speculating and it's hard from one year to the next to really guess the marketplace. Whites may be a real trend this year and we find ourselves running a little short on white. It doesn't make any difference what it is. You're out of white this, you're out of white that. You know, all of a sudden your whites are gone and the next year you make an adjustment and move up. Well, all of a sudden they're looking for blue and yellow. Think, well, I'm not the only one kind of in this circle of demand. When I go up 10% in a color, my neighbor's going up 10%, my competitive friends in my same district, if you will. And before you know it, you have more of that product than you need. Talking to customers early on and trying to develop a plan, especially large commercial guys that are going to need literally thousands of products to create a design through a property. We're asking people for 26 weeks lead time. Quite often, they don't even know if they're going to have the contract the following season. You can't sit on your hands. We try to work with them the best we can and you know, tell them it's in their own best interest to really sit down with us and let us help them develop a product that's going to work for them. That's kind of where we are today. And in hopes to have less shrinkage, you can have a really good year, but it's really balanced by how much you don't throw away. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people see these trucks rolling out of here and everything looks really good. But you know, towards the end of the season, if you're filling up the dumpsters a little too much, it really offsets your, your profitability. Just sending those to the landfill or are you composting them? Tried a little bit of doing the composting. I know we need to get a little bit more serious with it, but as today is, it's a labor thing as much as it is anything. We just don't have the opportunity to really focus on that right now. I do work with nonprofits in the area. Matter of fact, I have four carts of absolute free, no strings attached going to the city of Charleston tomorrow. Charleston has been a great community for us. They've really supported us. That's kind of my outreach community you go hey get us in some neighborhoods call up some of your nonprofits, put some of these plants in the hands of folks that can use them when we have an oversupply we have some public gardens in the area that i can reach out to and it ebb and flows a little bit some years you just hit it just right in other years the rug gets pulled out from under you you'll have two thousand of something that you're keeping an eye on and you know things happen in business sometimes it's just a matter of a domino effect we're holding on to this product that's perishable and we can only hold it so long after we deem it ready for market. I want a lot of crops in 
at least a half a year, 26 weeks. Are there others that take longer? Planning seems to be the key, but you never know because of what curveballs you might be thrown. In a perfect world, we would have material just flipping every six or eight weeks. That would be just a great crop bench time for us. But there's some crops out there that take a lot longer than that. We're preparing ourselves for spring right now. And in the Savannah area, our average frost date's about March the 20th. And I remind people, those are average frost damage possibilities. It's not like you got the green light as soon as March 20th, go out there and plant. So we can see some frost damage here all the way into early April. And it also depends on the location that these plant materials out of our area are going. If we're hugging the coast, we can do pretty good going into early April. But if we go inland 60 miles or north of us, it can vary a little bit with where this frost will land at any given time right on into the second week of April. There are those concerns. We try to really put the right plant out there at the right time. But I get some pressure for some really warm season product earlier. Some people are kind of pushed into a planting date for whatever reason for, say, early spring. They don't have the allowance to be planting three times a year. Might be putting a Vinca or a Zinnia or a Penta in a little prematurely with real risk, but they're trying to put that product in that will take them through the summer and they can wait until we cool down to install fall annuals, which in Savannah, no earlier than the third week of October. It's changed quite a bit. I can remember at least three and sometimes four rotations at some of these communities, and that's really paled back all the way since the recession of 2008. It's a cost-cutting measure? I think it really is, and I think it's stuck. Unfortunately, we didn't see that rise back up. The way they did it before was always at least three plantings for these higher-end gated communities. There's a few that still understand that three times is what's needed. Part of it's real estate and these big communities that have finally built out and filled their communities up. The real estate was what was really pushing a lot of the beautification on the outside and they shrink it back when it gets all handed over to the homeowners association. can certainly understand that and they have other amenities that they've got to support as well. Sometimes the flower end of the budget seemed to be the first to get cut and I don't quite understand that. You're primarily shipping out four inch material? Really changed over the years. Seemed like 20 years ago everybody was growing in about a three and a quarter, three and a half, these 18 count cells and certainly we at one time were growing a 36 count. We decided years ago to kind of separate ourselves from the pack early on because it's all about, well, I can get this for a dime less or I can get this for 20. Everybody had the same product. So we started growing a a little bit larger plant and we started growing six inch plants and we were also growing four inch. Today, we're still growing four inch. There was a period of time, I think it was all the way back to 2008, that we thought these six inch plants, we call them a trade gallon now, but it's a six inch pot. We're probably going to be a little pricey during that time when people were really taking a close look at what they were spending. But I tell you, it didn't last very long. We got right back out there and started growing those six inch again, and it just gives them instant gratification. The larger the plant that you install to begin with, the less issues you have with it. It's just certainly more forgiving. The plant gets a little too much water, or somebody didn't quite get that irrigation just right, it's much easier to bring that one gallon back around than a smaller container.
But what are the changes we you seeing in the market? We are seeing some changes in the market as all of us get older. Folks that we've done business with and that we've sat down at the table, we can finish each other's sentences and they're starting to retire. It's almost like we're having to retrain or get familiar with the next person up. Think of a resort community that really have anybody focused in on this position. It's one thing to be taking care of all your common grounds on a piece of property and it's another kind of expertise, if you will, or an eye for the color side of it, quite often they'll bring some guys over that are superintendent at a golf course. Really not his interest. So you almost have to start from the beginning and say, all right, you are great at growing grass. I want to get you excited about it. I want you to understand the importance of it. And then I want to make it easy for you. What we have seen is the labor issues for years. This didn't just start recently. It's made it worse through the pandemic. Prior to that, we had already seen some labor issues. People really not being able to put as many people on the color aspect of their business as I would like to see. What we started doing was going back to the table with them and trying to come up with products that were less labor intensive to maintain. There are some of those, and we saw some of these trends, even with the balance of pansies and violas. And when violas came into play, I had a lot of people go, why do I want that plant with these little small blooms when I can get this pansy over here with these great big flowers? When you have to deadhead as much as you do on a pansy, people started to get it. And they would say, when this viola's in bloom, it's got 100 blooms across the top here. And I was like, yeah, you can see that viola standing right here 100 feet away from you. It's not all about the size of the flower. Your benefit is you can plant that small flower. It pretty much self-cleans itself unless it goes through a terrible stress. And you don't have to have somebody out there every 10 days to keep it clean. Deadheading's not only for keeping the flower looking really good and presenting itself in the way that you want to see it presented in a commercial setting. Deadheading keeps those flowers coming. It sends that energy back to making more flowers. Well, the small violas, size of those, they just kind of drop off and nature kind of takes care of them. That's been one of the things we see. Timing is, is a lot and people's expectation. Well, they need to wait on temperatures and things of that nature. My direction is like I'm working with someone and I want to try to let them understand the risk of planting a product a little out of season. I know we're going to get hot, but this plant wants a really warm soil and nighttime temperatures need to be up. But they're determined because they saw it at box stores that it must be ready. That's a misnomer. You were in the retail business at one time. You know what I'm talking about. It's misguiding. It is. I don't know if it's they're hoping to sell that plant twice to the client because they'll put it in too early and the frost to get it and then they have to come back and do it again. In my area, it seems like always in March, we always have a really warm shot. Everybody gets excited and they want to go plant. Inevitably, it turns back cold and we've had snows and freezing and, and all kind of stuff. It's really patience when it comes to the color is, is really important. Should be buyer beware. Exactly. I remember the garden center. We used to have folks coming in wanting to know where the material was and why we didn't have it. It's too early. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly right. We would like to be the right guide for you. Mm -hmm. But I get kind of pinholed in on some of that. And I try to explain, we ship north of us about 100 miles, and that would be into the Charleston area. Their zone is very similar to ours, but surprisingly, here we are going north, and there's a little bit of Charleston that is actually, you're not going to believe this, out on the coast is actually a little spot 
that is zone nine in Charleston. Really? I know it is just amazing. You have these little microclimate areas, but they're little protected spots and coastal waterways has something to do with that. And also going south 100 miles down to Sea Island and on that coast. We could go down south spring, maybe a couple of weeks early. We have been known to ship geraniums the third week of February down to Sea Island. I just sent some calla lilies, and this is a perennial variety, large white calla lily, down to Sea Island. It just depends. So if you see something on my list, you know, what might work here, I'm always trying to get people to understand, if your project is on the coast, you've got a little bit more of a forgiveness there when it comes to cold. I know in our area, we're doing a lot of tropicals and seasonal color together, mixing that, especially in painters. Are you, I guess you're seeing that a lot, too. Tropicals in the landscape have been real trendy, and I would say for a decade. Now, here, for us, we noticed it with people wanting crotons. I mean, they were planting petrocrotons out, really bright colors. If I could get them from far enough down south, see, you've got to get these plants from where they're getting lots of sunlight or they don't have any color early. And, of course, everybody wants that instant gratification right off the bat in these resort areas. The day they plant it, they want it to look like it's going to look look in months. You know, they just want that right away look. It started with crotons, and I mean large numbers, mass planting, 100, 150 gallon or three gallon crotons. And then they would work that in with other colorful annuals, sun patients, what have you, whatever the designer kind of felt like would make the right pop for them. We're also seeing a lot of quarter lines. There's so many variations of what we used to think about as the tie plant. I had no idea until I started working with some guys down in South Florida. There's all types of different colors that are all very bright and work out in landscape. Some in full sun, some work out better in filtered light. A lot of elephant ears. We grow some ourselves. Lots of variety in collocation, alocasia. So, yes, we're seeing a lot of combinations. And I think you could see more and more tropicals. But right now... Through the pandemic, tropicals have also kind of worked towards indoor patio plants, and it's hard getting them right now. There's not enough cuttings coming into the United States. I think everybody's at capacity. Do you recommend to your clients about the irrigation systems when they should run it? Because that can make a break annual planning. I think they've made some people a little lazy in the fact that they're just not keeping their eye on product as much as they should. Early on, and I mean when something is just transplanted, you can certainly set the clock. As they say, set it and forget it for the first week or so. It just depends on your location, what the crop is. I think that's perfectly reasonable, something I can understand. If you're on a property just once a week, you might about to ride back by to see just how that's doing. I see more issues with overwatering, and I sometimes sit and talk to folks that are just starting to design the front of an entrance, and they're going to put these beds in place, and they're trying to design where they're going to put the flower beds. And I implore to them, at least if you're not doing anything else, don't put those flower beds on the same zones that are going to come on every time you're over-irrigating your grass. Just need to be on their separate zones so you can monitor that. I would absolutely love to see more commercial growers put those beds on some form of drip instead of overhead irrigation to reduce the problems with disease. More often than not are watering at night, which is a terrible practice, but there's reasons for that in resort areas. 
sometimes with sidewalks and things like that, that they cannot keep wet because of liability issues, people walking and such. Drip irrigation would eliminate so many problems that I see out there with overhead irrigation. As long as we can throw water in the air, we've got an irrigation system. And you're really talking about three different areas and three different ways that that system needs to be set up. And that's your grass needs to be totally different from all your woody ornamentals, your shrubs and things like that, and totally different from your color beds. Wish I could get more people to understand that. And economic speaking, they'd be way ahead of the game if they just did it up front. And sometimes I wish I would have done. Mm -hmm. We're so focused on the short-term dollar that we lose on the long-term dollar. I have people ask me all the time, how often and how much water do you think I need to turn this clock on for this plant? How do I answer that? I'm a firm believer in watering well and deep and let it dry out properly. It depends on the crop. Quite often at my own garden at home, when I take some of these annuals home to do some trials myself, I'm planting them on the weekend. I water them in really well, depending on the time of the year. I might go back and hose water one more time during the week. But after a couple of weeks, that plant's on its own. It needs to show me what it can do because this is what I'm selling. I just think there's way too much water being put on these flower beds. I agree with you. I believe we overwater and we we tend to overmanage our landscapes overall, I believe. A lot of times we create our own problems. We absolutely do. There's no question about it. We're impatient. And I think we've gotten the idea, well, the more water we put on it and the more fertilizer we put on it, the better off. That's just not the case. How many trials do you go to a year? Had a little setback with the last couple of years. Like to go to at least three or four a year. I might go up to the University of Georgia a couple, three times a year. What we've found is we go up to these trials during an open house, and it may be early June, and they would have an invite for all the industry folks who are open to the public, and we would go up. You'd walk through, and you'd get an opportunity to ask questions to some of the representatives of the different breeding that's going on there. Great day to ask questions. Athens being a little cooler, a little different than Savannah, Georgia, I have to be careful. So what I do, everything looks beautiful in June because the nighttime temperature has been reasonable and things look really good. I like to go back in August when the heat has really jumped on them. And then I can kind of get an idea of heat tolerance because that's what we're looking for here. We're looking for plants that are going to take the heat. They don't have the humidity like we do, so we have to be careful there. I wish there was another trial that wasn't so far away, closer to the coast in our area. University of Florida used trial a good many products down in Gainesville, but I don't think they're focusing on that as much as they used to. I have had the pleasure of going down to Miami and seeing the trial gardens at a very large company called Costa. That is a phenomenal trial. I've been down there in January a couple of times. Closest trial large that I go to is just outside of Charlotte at Metrolina. After the trials, then you start getting your order list. Are you ordering seed or are you ordering plugs or are you ordering both? So I use the term plug for a product that has been sown from seed. I'll use the term liner to identify a vegetative plant coming in. They're coming from all kind of various sources. It's really, it's it's amazing. I, I, I just mentioned this morning, it would be fantastic just if I took a week or a month and I started writing down each day what plants we had coming in that day and where they originated from. And what I mean by that is most all the vegetative plants are coming from Central America. They're not coming directly to us because I want them rooted as a liner. The stock plants are originating from Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua, 
They're coming in to rooting stations in the United States. For us, we try to keep it with the less travel, the better, just for freight. So we're trying to pick vendors that do a good job up and down the East Coast. And then we would get them shipped in directly from that rooting station here. And then we would finish it from there. We have a great alliance with Ball Horticulture. They have an exclusive relationship with a company out in Colorado. And that's where we get most all of our cool season annuals, pansies and violas and such. And they're just in a great climate to produce these cool season annuals for us that we get shipped directly on their trucks to us. That's what we like, as opposed to being put on FedEx. And I don't have to tell you about all the concerns with shipping right now. It's a nightmare. More with Terry Beasley after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Well, let's talk about some of the history of Olshik's Nursery. It's the oldest nursery in the southeast. It's 140 years old, started in 1882 by Carl Olshik. Can you tell us the story of how that's happened? Yes, and I'm going to start off by saying it was August, Carl Olshik, and he went by August. Carl was his middle name. Fascinating story. I was fortunate to work with the grandson of George Olshik and his brother, Albert. Now I am working with the fourth generation, which is George's son, Kurt. I remember speaking to George a bit, and I've heard some stories along the way. And I think it was not until I really decided this was my profession that I started listening to some of these stories a little closer. I wish I had Mr. George on a podcast today. We do have a wonderful recording from an interview from a morning show over in Hilton Head, and that'll always be cherished to go back and listen to. August came into the United States like many immigrants from Europe in 1874 at 25 years of age. If I hear the story correctly, he had a sister that had moved to New York and was working with a family with wealth. He comes to the United States. This was before Ellis Island. They were coming into an area at the tip of New York called Castle Gardens. He found work with a gardener. And I'm thinking, a gardener in 1874? He ended up in a little area in Queens called Woodside. And that community is still there today. There was a community of German immigrants there. He ended up getting a job with a guy named Gabriel Mark. They were doing high-end gardening for all the residents that built these wonderful estates in Long Island. I must have missed that in my history book, or it wasn't an interest or an area that I had ever paid much attention to. This was the wealthy of the wealthy living in Long Island at that time. This was probably one house of many. About that era, there were several hundred estates on Long Island. I'm just imagining these are large properties which were kept up by a number of gardeners. You know, they were all competing with one another. They traveled to Europe and they wanted that landscape that they were seeing over in Europe at their back door. He worked as a gardener for seven years in Long Island. The next move is Savannah, Georgia. And we have really never figured out how and why. But we do know this. Most of the roses at that time were being shipped in from Europe. And I am speaking about roses that were used in landscape in these properties on Long Island. They were very expensive. A lot of loss on ships coming from Europe. I'm sure it was some hit and miss on what they were able to get. I don't know if he formulated this idea on his own. 
that he came to Savannah to grow roses in the ground in Savannah, Georgia, and ship them back to the Northeast to some of these people that he had met up that way. He partnered early on in 1881 with a guy by the name of Myers. I have read several documentation that I feel like is very trustworthy that Mr. Olshig may have been the first to grow bare root roses in the United States, right here in Savannah. We have a couple of old photographs which shows this gentleman behind this little, what appears to be like a barbed wire fence, and there they are, the roses in the ground. Just a fantastic old photograph. I have a brochure, and it's an Olshig and Myers wholesale price list. The year is not on this, but I remember seeing an old newspaper article where these two broke their partnership up at like 1882. This would have been prior to 1882, and it lists all the hybrid perpetual roses that they were growing at the time. It is quite the list. It is probably well over 200. A business started from there. By 1882, Mr. Olshig was out on his own. He had bought Mr. Meyer out. His business started to go into other things. He started looking at other products that he could grow here year-round. He was quite the self-promoter. 1890, he found a farmhouse with some land, started building greenhouses. By 1890, had 11 glass greenhouses. I'm just thinking, eight years from being out on his own from 1882 to 1890, he's already constructed 11 greenhouses. Where the starting money came from, nobody knows. All the articles that we've ever read said he did this on hardly any money. There's some things on this history that really are intriguing to me. Number one, when he arrived here, as they say, circa 1880, 1881, there was a hurricane right here. 100 mile an hour winds in 1881. It was newsworthy at the time. He did have a piece of high ground. I don't see any mention of damage or issue. 1893, there was another hurricane with 120 mile an hour winds, and this one is still in the top 10 in the United States today. Killed 3,000 people on the Barrier Islands between Florida and South Carolina, including about 700 at Tybee Island, which is only about 12 miles from us. I'm just thinking about that, the weather over the years just playing a factor. How hard that must have been, growing roses in Savannah Earth. I thought they were all being shipped on train lines, and I think later they were. From what I can see by this brochure, they were actually shipped on steamships as well, right here out of Savannah Harbor. I know there was a time that that must have transitioned to the trains because the trains would have gotten them up to their destinations faster. He's growing those roses in the greenhouses? No, sir. These were all grown outside in the ground. From this little description, it says these hybrids run anywhere from four to eight feet. They cut them at two feet tall to ship. I was just looking over this today and reminding myself. Some of this sticks to me and some of it I have to read over again and just really shake my head. As this business evolved, I think he must have really made some inroads with folks in the Northeast. Some of these customers may have been interested in different types of floral decor. In other words, many of these nurseries didn't only sell live plants, but they were getting involved in floral work. That could have been for big parties or gatherings. Again, we are servicing high-end clientele. He was going out to the woodland forests, if you will, and cutting the tops of pines, palmetto, smilax, and I can't believe this one, Spanish moss. These were all being purchased by these clients in the northeast, and they were decorating with them. I mean, 
These are tropicals. They've never seen things like this before. Today, that's hard to believe. The business just morphed into more than just roses. I think camellias came into play. And before long, I can't believe we're zeroing back to this, but I see an ad by the early 1900s for coleus. And you could get 100 cuttings for a dollar, or you could buy some rooted cuttings, 100 for $2. And they were little small rooted cuttings. I've just been almost obsessed going back and looking there was a time when we were the largest producer of rubber plants, Ficus elastica, in the world. I said the world. How'd that come about? I don't know. Where did the rubber plants even come into play at the very beginning? I don't know the answer to that, but I know they lost all the stock plants in 1912. He had a couple of sons in the business, and they were disheartened by losing all the stock plants and decided just, we'll move into some other directions. We won't bother with that rubber plant anymore, which I think, wow, how about that? That's still a pretty popular plant today. Oh, yeah. They were sending rubber plant cuttings offshore to all kinds of places. I think we were one of the very first that ever got into FTD, which was basically a floral design being ordered over a telephone. Retail element to the business. That kind of happened with lots of family in the business. These generations grew. Kurt tells me that there was a couple of brothers. I would think this was the second generation. And one of the brothers ended up running the retail side of the business. And the other brother, that would have been a Carl. And the other brother would have been an Albert. And he ran the greenhouse business. The brouhaha was that the retail business was propping up the greenhouse business. Regardless of how all that went down, they parted ways. So now we have two family businesses. We have one that is retail, florist, if you will, and you have another one that is wholesale. And if he was being propped up by the retail, they had to make some quick decisions on what to do. They started going out, promoting their business as a wholesaler. There was somebody that would represent the company in little other areas outside of the city of Savannah. They built a business some way, shape, or form selling wholesale plants. And I'm sure other florist shops would be supporting them as well. They had a good greenhouse business going, but that had to be a real interruption of the family dynamics that split up. I think Albert Sr., he may have passed away a year or so before I started at the nursery. So I worked with the third and now the fourth generation. Been working with the nursery for 45 years, right? Yeah, I think Easter or coming up on 46 years. I think it was the summer of 1976. I absolutely love it. I guess I'll stay around here as long as they put up with me. During the time that I started in 1976, I started to see a little bit of things changing. I wasn't quite as attuned to what was going on. Now, looking back, I see it a lot clearer. We were very, very busy. But what we saw that started changing the business was we were selling to mom-pop flower shops. They seemed to be doing really well during the 70s and into the early 80s. We started seeing grocery store chains jumping into the mix. I remember seeing some grocery stores and they would approach us. And I was always really leery and I wasn't aboard early on to sell to grocery stores. There were times when we were grateful that we could sell some of the surplus we had, but we could see where that was really changing the structure of the neighborhood little family floor shop. Before long, this was happening all over the United States where grocery store chains were starting to get into the floral department and they were actually putting flower shop within the grocery store. Now, we didn't see any real way out of it. It was like if we didn't sell 
sell to them, somebody else was going to sell to them. So we started selling to some of the grocery store chains. It wasn't long after that when we started seeing a few flower shops starting to close up or really struggle. Years later, we realized who we were selling to was starting to really sink. So we started looking for some other avenues of what can we sell and how can we diversify our business. About this same time, we had some ball seed representatives come to us and go, look, we've got some really fast turns on a new, I think they called it spark plug at the time, but it was basically a, you don't have to grow these little annuals by seed anymore. We've got a way, get you a quick little starter plug. And in six to eight weeks, you can put this out on market. And we think this is the thing of the future. Well, we started growing a few of those. And sure enough, we found some little places to sell some, whether it was a new little garden center or that time we might've still been doing a little business with some little dime stores like Woolworth, or we might've been selling to Kmart at the same time. That was part of diversifying our mixture of what we could do. That helped prop the business up for a little while. But what I had no idea was the people that were really going under. What I mean by that is all of a sudden our receivables were getting pretty heavy. People were really struggling to pay their bills and to keep their businesses afloat. I think that was part of it. It was a a real shift in the way people were purchasing plant material. I'm going to say around 1989, both brothers brought sons back into the business, kind of keeping the family dynamics level, if you will. One was a full tenured professor out in California at Cal Poly. He was a horticulture major, of course. His name was Rick, and Kurt had just finished up his degree at University of Georgia in agricultural economics. With some new blood in and sit down and have everything put on the table and look best for the company, I thought we did a real good job making some changes, and boy, it all came back to fester about two or three years later. Just couldn't make some final decisions on where we needed to go and what we needed to stop doing that was costing the company money. Could see both sides of it. Had some loyalties there with one brother who said, these people have been supporting us for 50 years. We can't turn our back on them. I can certainly see that side of it. And then Mr. George and Kurt had a little bit more progressive approach. The the two brothers parted ways in 1992. George and Kurt started this business with about eight people. Took eight of the employees from the other location. I say other at this point. I didn't get my invitation right away. They had to get their feet solid on the ground and get this business going. And I had an opportunity a few years later to speak to them about a sales position that had just opened up as their business was growing. Unfortunately, the other business ended up closing up a few years later. I tell everybody that wasn't because I left them. It was just time. Kind of sad. I go by that area where I grew up, learned how to drive, 15 years old. I couldn't put a truck into gear. They made a flatbed truck out of everything they ever had. It didn't make any difference what it was. If you couldn't go out on the road anymore, they cut the back off of it and put a piece of tin on the top of it. And we'd haul caladiums from one end of that place to the other or go pick up orders. It was quite the place to work and grow up on. I bet. We had some characters. We were 35 people strong at that time. And that was a lot of employees back in the 70s and 80s. That was a pretty big expense for a company back then, running two and three trucks to flower shops. So what that would be we'd working about a hundred miles outside of Savannah load up all the material that we were growing, plus material we were buying out of Florida. That was tropical foliages. So I tell people, we would sell anything that was a live plant that you might see in a flower shop today. All the tropical plants that you see there are still very popular out of Florida, along with all the blooming material that we would have seasonally. Chrysanthemums were a year-round product that we grew. We were producing 1,200 six-inch florist mums a week. That was big numbers back in those days. I remind myself, the bigger you are, the bigger you fall. Now I know that you've got to just keep your eyes open for changes in the market. And you can't sit on your hands too terribly long when you see something changing. You've got to continue to look out and to look forward. 
Today, what we're seeing is a different way of doing business is one of the biggest changes we see today. It's marketing and the way things are done differently. The way things are marketed is done differently? We don't see near as much face-to-face as what we used to. Today, it's quick putting orders in with emails or sending text messages quickly to get an order in place. We still have salespeople that are answering the phones and answering questions and giving some direction. And we're trying, again, to get out in front with some of the largest concerns that we do business with because the largest concerns really shift your inventory really quickly. If I have a big company that is not giving me that lead time so I have an idea what to grow for them, they can buy up against whatever I've got speculated. And sometimes they can take a big bite out of that. With that being said, I'm very much compelled to go and speak to them because if I'm only growing 2,000 butterfly pink pentas in a given week and this guy wants 1,500 of them, well, he sure doesn't give me that many to share with the rest of the public. And that's just the way it is. I've got this much product to sell and they're all available. And I have somebody call me up and want to plant something the middle of April and say, I need 300 blue scavola. Look and go, well, yeah, I'm growing 500 and somebody's booked 100. I actually have 400 left. Well, you know, that's what I've got left. And I don't think people realize how much of this is happening. Sit on the sidelines. You're going to miss out completely. Today's different main things that I do think about besides the weather events and and hurricanes being on the coast. had a terrible hail event in 1967. I was a seven-year-old boy eating Sunday dinner at my grandmother's, which was one block away. And I remember my father and his brother walking down to see all the glass that had broken on the greenhouses. And I understand that hailstorm caused the Olsheks to look at another piece of property and to build a facility with fiberglass. That was the last straw for the glass green greenhouses was that hailstorm. There have been times when an event like that really caused, just like the rubber plants that I talked about, a freeze causing a shift in what the business was doing. How in the world they made it through two events, I do not know. Think about this. How do you run a wholesale business through the depression and stay afloat? Thank goodness there was enough wealthy in our area to continue to support this business somehow or another. Other one that I think about a lot was World War II. During World War II, you have a business with German heritage, and you know what those stories were like for all types of families that had ancestry towards groups that we all thought they were all our enemy. There was even some hubbub, Kurt said, some old stories about they had a really a tall stack, part of the heater, putting the coal into the furnace, keeping the greenhouses warm through steam, and it was a pretty tall structure, and there was some talk about the old ship had an antenna on top of that stack to alert the U-boats out on the Atlantic, you know, all that kind of call. But how they continued a business, I guess two of them enlisting proved their loyalty. One ended up getting captured at the Battle of the Bulge and the other served as a Marine out in the Asian theater. Those kind of things run really deep with me here. And I think about the loyalty that this family has had to community and just been great Americans. Those are the kind of people I want to associate myself with. Is there anything else? Theme of the business that has kept us going has been very short. And Mr. George would say this to us all the time. And that would be late nights when we were sitting here. Just all we wanted to do was go home. And it was 10 o'clock and there was still work to be done before we could go home. And we needed to be in a truck at 6 o'clock in the morning. And he would say, keep the faith, boys. Keep the faith. Bring back the wisdom of Mr. George. That's exactly right. Don't forget that. This is nothing. There's no problem that we've got right now. This is nothing. 
come back and look at the history of this business. Man, this is cake. What is your earliest garden memory? I can remember working with my grandmother in her yard. She had little vignettes, if you will, all around her yard that were flowering. Could have been azaleas, but it wasn't just azaleas. I remember my grandmother pointing out an azalea within this circle around this oak tree that may have had a little different look. She may have had a name for it, milk and honey or something like that. Something she had picked up and she had remembered the name of it. There were a number of plants that she had flowering. I can remember some caladium bulbs in her backyard that we planted, and it was some seasonal little lilies of some sort, maybe Asiatic or Oriental. She had a little shade garden next to a large camellia that was protected from a, a little garage there that had maiden hair ferns that would come back every year. Outside of her little kitchen window, dining room window there, she had a, a little bird feeder and a bird bath, and she'd circle that bird bath with seasonal flowers every year. I remember that. My chore was to keep the grass cut. That was done and I had a little time on my hands. She'd have me doing some other chores along with her planting bulbs or cutting something back. That's my first recollection of doing something was with my grandmother. I remember buying some anemones one time and I tried to remember if that was when I might have first started working at the nursery. Remember I was 15 and that was probably like I'll say when I was 15 years old, I went to the Kmart Garden Center and bought some little pips. That is little anemone pips. And I remember planting those along the side yard. I remember them coming up. I think I was so proud of them. I remember taking pictures of them. It was just a row crop of little anemones. You know, to watch something come up from a seed and sprout and it looked like triple curly parsley coming up. And then here you got some little flowers and really beautiful, actually. Those are great. Do you have a funny plan or garden story? For years, we did business with the city of Savannah. We do some business with some municipalities. The city was just really good to the company for years and years and years, planting color in all their squares. They've limited that today. There was a time when they would buy 20,000 bulbs from Holland. We'd keep them cool. They'd plant for St. Patrick's Day. And I think the larger the crowds, the rowdier they got, and they really tore those tulip and daffodil beds up. So they thought, what's the point? In some focal areas, in, in some of our more popular tourist places, the city is still really good about putting color out, which is fantastic. Well, there was a lady with the city that was in the payables department. We wear a lot of hats, and every now and then I'd have called, I need to speak to Carol. Carol, I got an invoice. It must be lost. Maybe it's down in your desk somewhere. I'm trying to get it collected. So we became kind of chummy, you know. I'd help with receivables from time to time back then. Years later, Carol called me up and she said, I'm involved with a little group, and I was wondering if you would consider giving a, a little tour of the greenhouse and let us have a meeting there one afternoon. Yeah, I would entertain that. What group is this, Carol? And she says, well, I'm a member of the Savannah Hemorrhocalis Society. And I'm like, the what? She said, we grow daylilies. Oh, okay. I said, I think a few other people that come in and out of here have mentioned daylilies. I said, I don't know much about them, but that sounds great. If you want to bring this group in, 40 people one afternoon. Well, I hosted this event for about three years and got to know a few people by name. One year, somebody came up to me and said, Terry, you and your wife would love love this group. You would fit right in. I know you would like it. You'd be hybridizing daylilies before you know it. 
I was like, I can see this coming. They need some new members or something. I don't have much time, but I'll consider it. I think maybe the next season came in and they said, Terry, you're a member. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm a member? We just paid your annual dues, you and your wife. You won't make a few meetings. That would be great. But you're now a member, official. I'm like, oh boy, this is the hook. Three or four years later, I found myself growing a good number of daylilies. I was up to maybe 30, 40 or so. And I was really enjoying them, learning a little bit about growing daylilies, enjoying the people around me. I've learned after turning six, maybe before now, there's a lot to be learned from these folks that have lived a little longer than us. So I find myself listening and learning and trying to unlock what really makes this for them. Just the social gathering. I finally got hooked on these daylilies and learned a little bit more about them. I've not hybridized any yet. I have been going to a few growers and going to a few programs and learning a little bit more. Well, I was going to enter my first show. Savannah Daylily Society has had a show in Savannah for many years. They've talked me into entering a few. I'm going to do it this year. I'm going to have a few. I'd gone out the night before and I put my little ribbons around the daylilies that I thought was going to come into perfect bloom the next morning. And I couldn't have been more excited. I had about 10 that I thought were just going to be perfect. I'm going to win me a blue ribbon. My wife gently wakes me up about six o'clock as the alarm was just about to go off because you want to get those daylilies just before they crack open. And she said, you don't want to go outside. And I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? Well, my first daylily show, all the buds were eaten to the ground. I couldn't have been more disappointed. I get to the show and everybody says, I thought you were bringing some. I don't want to talk about it. I went through what customers have been telling me for years that I sell to with the deer. You know the deer kind of come into your area a little bit. Spray some of this. Try some of this. This should work for you. I learned firsthand what deer problems were all about because it just got worse and worse in my neighborhood. A few years later, I decided I've got to do something about it. We ended up building a privacy fence. We got Fort Knox. We were on the marsh facing west. I am not blocking that view. So we ended up with faux iron small slats all the way across on the back, which I've finally gotten used to and I don't see as much as I once did. $20,000 later, now I don't have any money to buy daylilies. <laughs> I'm done. My daylily expenses are over. Thankfully, that has done it for me. So if anybody wants to know how you can get rid of them, if you're in the right spot, you can build you an eight-foot-tall fence. So far, that has done the job. But I absolutely just look so forward to the daylilies coming into bloom. They do present a little work for us, especially after the peak of the season and it's hot. And you got to go out and keep them cleaned up a little bit just because that's the way I want them to look, not for any other reason. They've been a joy for my wife and I. It's been something we can work together on. She's got her favorites. I've got my favorites. And one day when I'm working a little less, I'm going to start hybridizing a few so I can understand a little bit more about that. And I can't wait to do that. What's your most valuable garden mistake? Oh, boy. I led a commercial grower to something that I think was a, a bit of a mistake, but I didn't see it coming. And I don't think you or your audience will see this one coming either. And it ties into deer. And we're trying all kinds of things. And this has been well over a decade ago. And it was a changing of the season. It was late summer. We needed to put in something that put some fall interest in before cool season annuals. And we grow a lot of ornamental peppers. It was my understanding that some of these peppers were really hot. And the deer, they get a mouthful of those. They're not going back for more. I'd say two or three weeks later, I go out to visit this guy I'm at his property. And I'll say, well, how are the peppers going? I was just wondering, are the deer leaving them alone? He said, indeed, the deer have left the peppers alone. But I hear a little hesitancy in a butt. So have you got rabbits eating them now? Terry, you're not going to believe this, but I couldn't understand where all the fruit was going. His Latino workers were picking them every afternoon. <laughs> 
employees of the company, you know, picking them and taking them home for their dinner or however they eat peppers in dishes. I thought that was pretty funny. What's your favorite plant? It could depend on the month. And today I walked around the greenhouses and I think because we go into the winter months, sometimes we'll have eight weeks of cold weather. And it's that anticipating spring that I have to think back to the plants that we grow and really initiate spring for us. We have been growing a Valentine's crop of hydrangeas for as long as I can remember. And because my mentor, Kurt's father, Dr. George, loved hydrangeas, I'd have to say I think hydrangeas are probably my favorite flower. They are awesome plants. Your professional career has been your biggest influencer. That was Mr. George. No, no question about it. I got married a second time and he was my best man. Just learned so much from him. When the last two brothers split the business, I had no idea, Craig. It was make this or fail. Failing was not an option. This was his livelihood. And he had a son that was going to carry this business to the fourth generation that showed interest in this business. Let me tell you what, he was 65 years old, starting over again. I mean, literally starting over again. He came over here with a small amount of money, the bank basically backing his loyalty to this industry. Today, they run him out of the bank. It was just a number of things that lined up that allowed him to reignite this business. I tell people, look, when your back is against the wall, desperate times calls for desperate measures. You know the adage, he wasn't going to let his family down. I could just see him going out to have a face-to-face meeting like business was conducted, sitting down with folks at Sea Pines Plantation in Hilton Head and sitting down with Sea Island Company down in St. Simons going, this is where we are. This is my intentions. Will you work with me? I will not let you down. What better commitment can you get than that? I'm all in. If I can't make it work, I've lost everything. I'm going to make it work. It's going to work. Look back at it now with Kurt from 1992 to today, 30 years. The progress that they have made on this business starting from the ground up, selling to a few garden centers and starting to sell to a few resorts that were really just starting to input color into resorts in 1992. It was all just starting. This trend had not always been there. The development of Hilton Head and the real estate growth in Hilton Head. You talk about location, 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 doing business face-to-face and honoring your commitments and sticking it out. It really is a good story and it needed to be told. And I appreciate the opportunity to tell it. Yeah. Yeah. Very good story. Oh, what have you recently learned that you didn't know about horticulture? Word that kept coming up the other day, and I was doing search on plant that I grow in my backyard. They know it. It's a bit of a tropical. We call it yesterday, today, tomorrow. That's Brunsfeltza. I had a friend of mine, Winter Garden, that I was visiting his operation. That's Knox Wholesale in Winter Garden. He said, Terry, I don't know if you know this plant, but my wife and I did some traveling, and I saw this plant all over Brazil. Thinking about that being one of my favorite plants in my backyard, I look so forward to that blooming, and it is just an absolute gorgeous plant. Look it up and it said it is endemic to Brazil. And I wasn't exactly sure what endemic meant. And I looked it back up today. It was trying to say that the defining of that area, it is found only here. It is native to only Brazil. This is the only place that it has ever been found growing in its natural state. And that's what the term endemic was. I didn't know that term. I think I've heard the word, but I didn't quite understand 
what it meant when it was trying to define in plant terms. I looked it up today, and Brazil is the only place in the world that they've ever found Brunsfeldsia. Beautiful plant. It has been coming back, but I think we are probably on the cusp. I bet you can't go too far north, maybe on that coast, but I doubt you can go very much further north than than where we are. That's That's what I'm gathering. I don't think I've ever heard it. I can check learning something neat off my list for the day. Tell us about your garden. Well, I keep some seasonal color in the front yard. I think about it as my floral welcome mat. I'll rotate that out a few times of the year. I really try to show to myself that some of these plants can be longer term with little to no care. Rotate between snapdragons, which I'll put in late October, and I'll leave snapdragons in, gosh, well until late April and sometimes the 1st of May, which gives me plenty of warm soil and air temperatures up where I can go right to Vinca. I've got some deer issues, so I've been limited to what I can do there. I have Blue Days, Evolvulus. And you may know that. It's been a couple of varieties, one by Proven Winter that is exceptional called Blue My Mind. There's another variety out there, Beach Bum Blue. And that's by a breeder company called Duman. So those two are just wonderful. They give me really good blue color. They'll perennialize in my area as well. As far as the backyard goes, besides the daylilies, I have a couple of citrus trees that I really enjoy. I have a beautiful Myers Lemon. We have that Brunspelsia yesterday, today, tomorrow. We have some angel trumpets. And then I have a few little seasonal beds in the back that I rotate from time to time. I have a beautiful variegated foliage hydrangea lace cap that I enjoy seeing return from year to year. My backyard changes seasonally. Right now, it's it's a little dismal back there. I have some agapanthus. The cold nights have got everything looking fairly dormant, but that is a winter garden. And there might be a few bulbs that'll come up, put in some daffodils, a little short variety that I really like called tete-a-tete. I'll bring home some plants. I call that my trial garden. There's a couple of areas where I keep a little rotation of color. I'll make an instant flower bed too with some plants that maybe we're a little long on. Do you have future plans for your garden? We do. We're looking to simplify some of the aspects of the labor. As much as I enjoy working out in the yard, the daylilies take up a great deal of our time during the warm to summer months. I'd like to reduce some of my other areas. By doing so, I'm going to reduce my sod by creating some more woody shrub beds. So I'm going to bring those beds out, layer them a little bit. I love that layer look. I see some designers that use a lot of layer with different texture with shrubs. And I'll go get some folks with some good expertise on that. In the backyard, beyond where I have fenced, I've got probably 150 foot that slopes down towards the marsh. Right now, I'm trying to create an area where I don't have any erosion. I'm going to probably sod just a little bit of that on the other side of the fence. Really want to go native or wildflowers beyond that. I want to reduce my time on the mower. Thinking I will leave that bottom slope to the marsh grass. I have this vision of creating a wildflower mix. Sounds like fun. Yeah, and it makes sense. Again, we're looking for balance. Balance is what we need. Terry, tell us how people may connect with you. They can call our phone number directly at 912-234-0015. They can certainly reach me on my email, which is terry, T-E-R-R-Y, at Olshigs, plural, that is O-E-L-S-C-H-I-G-S dot com. And we do have a Facebook presence. This has been episode 43 of Flower Emergency with Terry Beasley. Thank you, Terry. You're awesome. 
The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.